Isaiah 25, as we are going through this wonderful prophetic book of Isaiah. Let's read uh, the first five verses and then let's pray and we'll get right into our study this evening. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name for you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. For you have made a city a ruin, a fortified city a ruin, a palace of foreigners to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat. For the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. You will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place, as heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. Shall we pray? Our Father, as we enter into the study of your word this evening, we ask for the guidance of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would pour out your Spirit on us and grant us the understanding that we need to rightly divide your word, to understand it to the, to the point of knowing that this is what you want us to know. And we want to know, Lord, all of your wisdom for our lives. As we look to the days of the coming of the day, wonderful, well, actually awesome day of the Lord, we, we pray, Father, that uh, many more people will come to know the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and will give their lives to him, knowing that there's no safer place to be. As the world self-destructs from within, you have your plans from of old, and you've been faithful in all that you have desired for your people. So we, we pray that you will speak to hearts that need you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we began a study in what is called Isaiah's Little Apocalypse. I mentioned that chapter 24 could be called that in and of itself. The fact that within that whole chapter... Uh, there is that kind of a concise understanding of, of what is to come in, in the day called the day of the Lord, or as, as others call it, the great tribulation period, or the tribulation period. Uh, but this particular subtitle of uh, Isaiah's Little Apocalypse, uh, in fact, applies to chapters 24 through 27. So it's a much broader area that we're studying that we want to call Isaiah's little apocalypse. As we begin to look at chapter 25, uh, I want to remind you of a statement that I made last time concerning the time of that great and awesome day of the Lord, which, which was, as I said, described concisely in chapter 24. I, I mentioned that in the land of Israel, harvest time was usually one of great joy. You know, in other words, when they went out 
into the fields to gather the harvest. They gave thanks to the Lord for what they had. And, and, and uh, so it was a time of joy. There was songs and there's singing. And even to this day, those who are truly trusting in the Lord will go out and give thanks to the Lord for all that has been brought in. But uh, as we look at the day of the Lord, that's not going to, that's not going to be uh, in, that, in that way. And, and, and we notice that a little bit in verse 14 of chapter 24. But uh, there's not going to be joy in that time of great tribulation because there would be no harvest. There would not be a harvest like they would want. They would go out to their fields and everything would be dry and everything would be desolate. The judgments of God being so heavily affecting the land and, and the people. Uh, and it brought to, uh, to remembrance a verse of Scripture, Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 20. Because it's, it's, this is an ominous verse of Scripture. It says, The harvest is past. The summer is ended and we are not saved. And this, this is coming out of the people that are living during that time where, where God is bringing judgment to this world. And, and He's given people so many opportunities to escape that judgment, to escape that coming day of the Lord. But uh, there would be a time. And, and actually, this was actually uh, brought uh, forth uh, uh, and fulfilled uh, in, a, in a near fulfillment during the time of Judah's captivity that they had been given every opportunity to repent of their sins, and then all of a sudden the harvest was passed. The summer was ended. No more harvest after the summer. And, and uh, we're not saved. In other words, they came to the realization, we had the opportunity, but we didn't take it. And so they were taken into uh, uh, captivity. It's going to be worse later during that time of the Great Tribulation period. And so even when we hear the song of a preserved remnant in chapter 24, verse 14, the prophet himself mourns the dreadfulness of the great tribulation. And then throughout the centuries, you know, you know well, we could read that verse. Let me just read it to you. They shall lift up their voice. They shall sing for the majesty of the Lord. They shall cry aloud from the sea. But later on, uh, uh, Isaiah says in verse 16, But woe is me, the treacherous dealers have dealt treacherously, so on and so forth. Throughout the centuries, then, the cries of, of misery, the cries of lamentation from God's people have, has, have resounded long and they've resounded loud because they, they did not know the time of their visitation, of which Jesus would remind the city of Jerusalem when He came near to Jerusalem as He was going in to enter it to eventually be taken to the cross. But in Luke 19, verses 41 through 44, it says now as, as he drew near, as Jesus drew near to the city of Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace. And I want you to remember that statement of Jesus, that he's telling Jerusalem that, that they should have known the things that would make for their peace because the Prince of Peace was entering into that city soon. But he says, But now they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. And we know that historically, in A.D. 70, this actually happened. The city was destroyed by the Roman general Titus in 70 A.D., and the city was laid waste, and not one stone was left upon another. 
But what then will happen when they look upon him whom they've pierced? I'll get to that verse in Zechariah today. But you see, we're, we're looking at a prophecy that's pointing to a, further fulfill, a farther fulfillment, I should say. Even to us, it's in the future. Everything that we see, everything that we've been talking about happening in the Middle East, the things that are building up, the tensions that are, that are building up against Israel, we've talked about that since, since uh, uh, day one of this new year. We were doing our own prophetic update. All of those things are happening, just as the Bible predicted. Everything that, that, that is happening in that, in that area of the, of the world is, has, been, has been foretold. And we know that one day those people who have missed their day of visitation will have one more visitation, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, where they will see Him. What, what will happen when they look upon Him, see? I ask that question because of the silence that, 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 that we heard toward the end of chapter 24, even though there was a song by those of the remnant. Well, Isaiah comes back to that here as we arrive at chapter 25. And there is indeed a song of praise recorded by Isaiah, a song from the believing remnant that God will preserve during that day of the Lord. There will be those who will know that God is, is, is in control of all things. There will be those who will turn to the Lord. There will be those who will know that God is sending His Messiah. And of course, it, they're going to see Jesus. And that remnant will become the nucleus of the new nation after the powers of evil which would seek their complete destruction will be dealt with by the Lord Himself at His return. That remnant will be that new nation that will see Him when they pierced. But this is what Isaiah records in verse 1. He says, O Lord, You are my God. This sounds like a psalm, doesn't it? It is a psalm. It's a psalm of praise. O Lord, You are my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name, for You have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. Those who, who will have been so grievously misled in the past will then come to appreciate and to comprehend that God's counsels of faithfulness and of truth never have and never will change. His counsels will never change. And God is faithful in that and His truth will never change. The Lord, in other words, keeps His promises. The Lord keeps His promises. I mean, think about this. That even when the Lord Jesus appeared to bring those blessings that were expected for so long, and His people actually fulfilled their own holy scriptures in rejecting Him and giving Him up to death on the cross, and even saying this during the time of Jesus' first uh, coming, when they said, we will not have this man to reign over us. When Jesus was put on trial before everyone, and, the, and, and the, the religious leaders were going among the crowd, and they were saying that that's not the man. That isn't the one who we're going to follow. We will not have this man to reign over us. 
Even when that was being said, the Lord made that cross, that grand altar upon which the true sacrifice, the true Lamb of God would be offered for the sins of the world, all the while never changing His plans in spite of their and even our own failures and rebellion and sin. Folks, I want you to know something. When He made that plan, He knew exactly what He was doing and He knew exactly for whom that plan was for. And because the people were rebellious and because the people were turning their backs on Jesus, He didn't say, okay, that's it. He went through with a plan. And Jesus went to the cross. And while the Lord Jesus today, right now, is seated in glory, as Psalm 110 verse 1 tells us, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. You know, it's interesting that Israel to this day, even while they are back in the land that was promised to them, you know that they wander. They wander seeking peace and rest in vain. Why? Primarily because the Prince of Peace is yet a stranger to them. But this is what they should already know of Him. What they should already know about Jesus is that He's faithful. What they should know about the Lord God who loves them and created them and and, and cares for them and, and keeps them is the One who never changes. He's faithful. Psalm 36, verse 5, Your mercy, O Lord, is in the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the clouds. Your faithfulness, you see. God is faithful. He keeps His promises. Psalm 37, verse 6. I'm sorry, uh, Psalm 37, verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on His faithfulness. Why? Because God is faithful. What God says He's going to do. We are to feed upon that. We are to realize that we can take everything that God is and has and promised and realize that He's going to keep His covenant. He's going to keep His covenant with His people. He's going to keep His promises to us. Six times alone in Psalm 89, and, and, and you might want to look this up later, but in Psalm 89, six times the word faithfulness is mentioned. It's a psalm about faithfulness. And of course there is that great statement made in the book of Lamentations. Through the Lord's mercy, Lamentations 3 verses 22 and 23, through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. It's an interesting statement that, that, uh, that Jeremiah makes here in Lamentations 3 because he says, through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed. He's in essence speaking to his people. Hey, because of God's mercies, because of God's loving kindnesses, we're not consumed. Because his compassions never fail. They're new every morning, but then he stops and he praises God directly and he says, great is your faithfulness. You see, what what about our faithfulness? How faithful are we? We're not always very faithful. We oftentimes make promises we can't even keep. And even if we try to make promises that we could keep, sometimes we even struggle with those. But God never has a problem with the promises He makes because every promise He makes, He keeps. And we better be thankful and very glad that God loves us the way He does and will keep those promises to those that He loves.
There's a great verse of Scripture in Romans chapter 3, a great passage here in verses 3 and 4, where, where, where Paul asks this question. He says, for what if some do not believe? You see, a lot of people say today, well, a lot of people don't believe. What about that? Well, you know what? Listen. Listen to what he says. For what if some do not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? <laughs> Just because they don't believe, does that mean that God's not going to be faithful to His promises? Certainly not. God forbid. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. Isn't that something? Let God be true, and every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your word, speaking to God, and may overcome when you are judged. God's word will always be true. God's word will always be faithful. And it's easy to understand why people can get disappointed and even cynical when they've tried to trust in people and they get let down. I don't know about you, but I don't like to let people down. But there's times when, you know, I, I tell somebody, I, I, you know, I, I'm going to meet with you or whatever, and then something comes up that I, I have to take priority or I have to make a priority in, in that, and I try to reschedule or whatever. I don't like to do that. But that's just the nature of some of the things that I do sometimes with the church or with, with the chaplaincy or the police and all. And it happens. And, and you, but I don't like to do it. You see, God doesn't have that problem because God has seen the beginning from the end and the end from the beginning. So every time he says something, he's going to be faithful to keep it. Because he's always faithful in keeping his word to us. But by the way, let me just interject here that we aren't to be presumptuous with God in that particular sense. Because there have been people who have actually challenged God with that. Well, I asked God to do this, but he didn't do it for me. Well, who are you? See, don't be presumptuous with what God says. God is going to be faithful to His Word, but don't test Him. Why do people do that? Well, primarily they do it because they don't believe Him. And they're going to try to say, well, see, that proves it. It doesn't prove it just because you ask for, you know, the Lord to give you a bowl of chocolate ice cream at 5 in the morning. That's kind of a ridiculous thought, isn't it? But that's the way some people are. God is faithful. Think about what He's faithful to us in the church. When, he's, when, when John, in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, gives us that wonderful statement concerning God's forgiveness. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to what? To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Aren't we glad for that particular promise that if we confess our sins, He's faithful to forgive us? He's just to forgive us? And that not only that, but to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because He doesn't want us to go down that road or down that path again? If we confess our sins, there's a, that's, that's a condition. If we confess our sins, He's faithful. And He's just to forgive us our sins. And so with that, that thought in mind, uh, here in verse 1, before we even move on, let me ask you this question. When we worship the Lord, when we praise and worship the Lord, are we thinking of and remembering His great works? Are we thinking of and remembering His faithfulness? Are we thinking of and remembering His ability to accomplish for us above and, be of, uh, and beyond all that we may even ask or think? Are we conscious of it are we thinking of this when we are worshiping the lord or are we just moving in some kind of an emotional state or are we just singing because we like to sing 
You know that worship and praising is not always done by singing. In, in, in reality, our worship is our life lived out before God. It's giving thanks to God with everything that we say and do because He's worthy of it and He's faithful. And He's done so many things for us already. And He's doing so many things for us right now. And He's getting ready to do so many things for us later on. God is faithful. Jesus is faithful. And this is why you hear in that first verse that phrase, Oh Lord, You're my God. I will exalt You. I will praise Your name for You have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. In other words, the plans that God has made, the plans that have already come forth, He was faithful to keep those things in the past, which means that if He's done them, He will do them and He will continue to do them. Now getting back to our text, how does that first verse then relate to the next passage, which it says here in verse 2, for you have made a city a ruin. A fortified city of ruin, a place of foreigners, to be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Uh, therefore, the strong people will glorify you. The city of the terrible nations will fear you. How does that, how does that relate, that, that song of praise, to that particular statement? Well, first of all, the city that is referred to here is not one that, that can be specified by name, but, but can be considered really a generic term to represent all cities. And there's a reason for this. Because in Isaiah's day and time, when most people lived in an agricultural world of towns and villages, the large cities, you know, the walled cities, uh, which were actually called city-states in those days, were the places of power, and they were the places of wealth, much like a city called Babylon. And it was usually in times of war that, that the people would flee to these walled cities for protection. But, but even the great cities of the world will not be able to offer any protection whatsoever when God pours out His wrath on the nations. And that's what's being said here. You can go back to Isaiah chapter 2 to, 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 to reconfirm this, this particular statement. Isaiah 2 verse 19, it says, They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and the glory of His majesty when He arises to shake the earth mightily. In Revelation chapter 16 verse 19, it says, Now the great city, you see that, that reference to the city, Now the great city was divided into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and great Babylon was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of His wrath. If you've been with us since chapter 13, you realize that there were judgments being given to Babylon and Moab and to many other uh, uh, nations and cities. Even Jerusalem is mentioned in judgment. But the link to verse 1 of our text can be realized because we can and should worship the Lord for His judgment. Listen carefully to what I'm saying. That we should worship the Lord for His judgment in that we have confidence in His justice, in His fairness. That He is a just God and whoever He judges, He judges rightly, He judges fairly. And that, of course, goes uh, you know, contradictory to the way we see judges judging today. In particular, secular judges that uh, really are not called to make law, but they make laws by the way that they judge. But God is fair in the way He judges. 
In other words, the Lord will never make a city a ruin unless the judgment is deserved. A city will not be a ruin unless it deserves it. And He makes provision for the righteous, as was the case with Sodom and Gomorrah. Because in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, as, as Abraham was pleading for his, for his uh, relative Lot and his family, provisions were being made, opportunities were being given. But no enemy can stand before God. And when God was choosing to judge that, uh, that, uh, those two particular cities, it happened. Why? Because He made every provision. For the righteous. He made every provision for those that needed to get out. Because God was judging that city. And it doesn't matter how big the obstacle. And it doesn't matter how big our enemy is. Why? Because God will always be much bigger. God will always be much bigger. I read a book years and years ago. Um, and it was actually written years before I even got it. <laughs> in my hands. But... Um, but the name of the, well, the title of the book was Your God is Too Small. It's a great little book. Your God is Too Small. And it was it was being written to the to the to the Christian mindset of so many Christians that uh, look at the things, uh, the problems of the world, or the situations in the world, and they they become. Uh, overwhelmed by them or anxious over them and, and, and they think, oh my God, what's going to happen? And, and, and the idea is, wait a minute, God is bigger than the problems that we face. God is much bigger than the, the personal problems that we face. What about the, what about the global problems that, are, that, that the world is facing today? God's bigger than all of that. He's bigger than all of it because He created the heavens and the earth. Whatever chaos we see is a chaos that is still in His understanding and still in His knowledge. And it hasn't gotten out of His control. He's exactly controlling it the way He wants. We don't understand it fully, but we're thankful that He's in control. And everything that He said that He's going to do to bring this world to, to an end as far as the, 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 you know, the, 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 the focus of, of the world in control as the world thinks it's in control... And show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. When that happens, it just shows the, 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 uh, the strength of his own power in, in all of this. God is much bigger. That is why we can praise God for his justice and for his judgments. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Look at this, uh, this passage. Deuteronomy 10 verses uh, 17 through 21. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords. That says, it, that says it, a mouthful, doesn't it? It says enough when you think about it. The Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. I mean, this is how great God is, that He's not just some God that, that demands that everybody just bows before Him, whether poor or rich or whatever, and, and He doesn't do anything toward them. He cares. He's so awesome that he's, he's so great in what He's powerful to do, yet He administers justice and gives to those who need. Verse 19, oh, by the way, when He does that, He does it through those who love Him. He does it through us. We should be that hand extended. In that time, it was His people Israel. Verse 19, Therefore love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You should know what it means to need bread and to want bread. 
you can give bread because I've given it to you. You shall fear the Lord your God. Verse 20. You shall serve Him and to Him you shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. He is your praise. And He is your God who has done for you these great and awesome things which your eyes have seen. How big is our God? How big is our God? He's awesome. He is awesome. From the time that the Jewish people said in the time of Jesus, when they said, we have no king but Caesar, listen carefully to what I'm saying here. We have no king but Caesar. That's what they said when Jesus was put on trial. From the time that the Jewish people said, we have no king but Caesar, they have had to endure unspeakably terrible suffering under many other Caesar sins. Even into our time and millennia. But at the end of the great tribulation, what's going to happen? At the end of the great tribulation, which is called the time of Jacob's trouble in Jeremiah 30, verse 7, Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. But he shall be saved out of it. At the end of the great tribulation, every power that will have oppressed Israel will be destroyed and they will be freed from tyranny. They will be, they will be free from the tyranny and the persecution that has come upon them forever. They'll be free from it forever. This is why they're praising God. When God judges, He judges rightly. He judges fairly. He judges righteously. And then in verses 4 and 5, there was another reason to praise God. Because of that care. Notice in verse 4, For you have been a strength to the poor, a strength to the needy in His distress, a refuge from the storm. A shade from the heat for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. I was reading a, I'll go on in just a moment, I was reading a um, translation of this passage and, and uh, in a relatively modern translation. Well, it is a modern translation. And uh, it, it said something about a refuge from the rain and I thought, that's not strong enough. That's why I struggle with new, new translations because... Because the, 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 the emphasis is upon, you know, hey, listen, I've been out in the rain and it hasn't hurt me. Right? Are you the same? I mean, you get a little wet, you go, well, you, you feel like, oh, I've got a little wet, but it doesn't hurt me. The emphasis was that, it was a, that God is a refuge from the storm. A storm we can understand. This last summer we had some storms in El Paso. Damaged a lot of things, hurt a lot of people. That's what he meant. That's what he meant here. A refuge from the storm, a shade from the heat, for the blast of the terrible ones is as a storm against the wall. See, that's the other reason why it has to be emphasized that it is a refuge from the storm. Why? Because the people who are being tyrannical and, and persecuting God's people are like a storm. A strong storm, a terrible storm. Verse 5, you will reduce the noise of aliens as heat in a dry place. As heat in the shadow of a cloud, the song of the terrible ones will be diminished. The enemies, in other words, of God's people. Now, I'm sure that, that you've heard people say, God helps those who help themselves. I'm sure you've heard that, right? God helps those who help 
them, God helps those who help themselves as if uh, they were quoting their favorite Bible verse. Uh, I, the fact of the matter is that you will not find that statement anywhere in the Bible. That's why I didn't ask you how many of you think that's in the Bible. Because, you know, you, I didn't want anybody to raise their hands. Cause it's, it's not there. I didn't want you to be, you know, to look weird. You know. well, I think it's there. Well, it's not there, folks. It's not there. It's, it's not there, and the concept is not there. Folks, listen carefully. People say, God helps those who help themselves. What are they saying? That God will only help those who, you know, lend a hand with God? The problem is, and the truth is, that God helps those who need help. God helps those who need help. We just read some of that in, in Deuteronomy, chapter 10. God helps those who need help. The real problem is that many people are trying to help themselves to whatever they can get for themselves. That's the problem. With God helps those who help themselves. It's like we're telling you, oh, God helps those who help themselves. Well, help yourself then. But that's not how God works. The real trouble comes when you don't think you need God's help. The real trouble comes when you don't think you need God's help. But here in verses 4 and 5, Isaiah is painting two pictures. By the way, I've said this many times, but I'll say it again in case you haven't heard me say it, but uh, the Old Testament is written in, in, in the Hebrew language, and the Hebrew language is a very descriptive, a very uh, illustrative kind of a language. Even the, 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 the figures themselves uh, are, are, are just done in such a way that they paint pictures. The Old Testament is about symbols and pictures. And, and, and so, so uh, Isaiah is painting two pictures for us here. One of a buffeting storm. A storm that, that hurts, that hits hard and, and hurts people. And a burning desert sun. That's the other picture. And he says that there is one answer to this buffeting storm and this burning desert sun. There's one answer, and that is the refuge that is the rock of God. The refuge that is the rock of God. And by the way, God is the rock. God is the rock. Deuteronomy 32, verses 3 and 4. For I proclaim the name of the Lord. Ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all His ways are justice, a God of truth, and without injustice, Righteous and upright is He. That is our God. God is a rock. He's solid. He's, he, he can't be destroyed, in other words. Jump down to verse 30, uh, 30, uh, Deuteronomy 33, verse 27. The next page there, it says, The eternal God is your refuge. Our refuge is a rock. And, and, and the, the eternal God is our refuge. And underneath are the everlasting arms. He will thrust out the enemy from before you and will say destroy. God is our refuge. Psalm 46 verse 1. God is our refuge and strength. A very present help in trouble. The answer to the storm, the answer to the desert heat is the rock of God. God. The rock. Psalm 61. We sang it tonight. Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. 
When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been a shelter for me, a strong tower from the enemy. I will abide in your tabernacles forever. I will trust in the shelter of your wings. Folks, you know, I would underline that, or if you have a highlighter, highlight that, and just put their song. (laughs) We sang that tonight. We like to sing scripture songs. Why? Because God's word is, is true. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Who's the rock that is higher than I? Who's the rock that is higher than us? Jesus is that rock. Jesus is the rock that is higher than anyone. We can hide under that rock, you know, from the desert heat. We can hide behind the rock when the storms come. And they will come. The times will get heated. And when the enemy thinks that they, they, they're winning victories over us, folks, whatever shouts of victory the enemy may sound off will be silenced. That's something else we see here. That whatever shouts of victory the enemy may sound off will be silenced and will disappear the way that the heat vanishes when, when clouds cover the sun. The Lord is going to see to it that His remnant will be preserved. We've all had that uh, desert heat uh, experience, you know, being out there. And then finally when a little cloud comes and covers the sun, <laughs> you know, that coolness, you, you feel it. It doesn't cool it up that much, but it, it's a lot cooler than it was before. That's the same picture here. The heat is dissipated because the sun is behind the cloud. And then in verse 6 of our text, it says, And in this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, a feast of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. This sounds pretty good. I mean, it's like, wow, it's a feast. On this mountain, speaking of Mount Zion, now a feast to, to an Old Testament Jewish person was a picture of the kingdom age. If there was mention of feast, they, they, they looked beyond just their day. They looked to that time of the kingdom where, where there would be a, a Messiah reigning over Israel and all the nations of the world. There would be a feast. In fact, Jesus used this image of a feast and when he spoke of it, the people knew exactly what he was referring to. He was referring to the promised kingdom. Uh, there's one reference in Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, where Jesus said, And I say to you that many will come from the east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. He was giving the picture that they knew about, the fact that the Messianic age was one of a great feast. In Luke chapter 13, verses 28 and 29, speaking somewhat in a negative way here of of things, when he says there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and yourselves thrust out, speaking uh, evidently to um, the, the Pharisees and all. But they will come, it says in verse 29, they will come from the east and the west, from the north and the south, and sit down in the kingdom of God. So sit down to what? Sit down to the feast. They understood the feast and the kingdom age to be one and the same. 
And notice in Revelation chapter 19, verse 9, something that most of us are familiar with when we think of, of the coming of Jesus again. And that is that uh, uh, John says, He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true sayings of God. And so there is that picture then of this marriage supper. The Lamb and His bride, the church. And that's going to be a time of feasting. It's also the time, as the book of Revelation tells us, that, that Jesus, the bridegroom, will serve the bride. He will come and serve us. And even Jesus is looking forward to this banquet or this feast. In Matthew 26, verse 29, Jesus said, But I say to you, I will not drink. And this is while he, he's giving you know, that, uh, that supper before he goes to the cross, he's, he, the Passover. Uh, he says, but I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus is looking forward to this feast. He's looking forward to this banquet, to this marriage supper. They understood this. It was in their mindset, the Jewish mindset. And it will be at this feast, by the way, that death itself shall be conquered. Death will be conquered at this feast. How do we know this? Go back to Isaiah 25 and look at verses 7 and 8. It says, And He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people. Oh, this, this is a beautiful picture, folks. You've got, you just got to take hold of this. He'll destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of His people He will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Folks, this is very descriptive language that Isaiah is using, in that he is describing a death shroud that the people, both the Jew and the Gentile, uh, is... Uh, is keeping them from seeing God. A death shroud that keeps them from seeing God, loving God, and obeying God. On that day, the Lord is going to destroy that veil. He's going to destroy this uh, uh, death shroud. And what is being described is, is uh, it's being described as a funeral that is going to turn into a wedding, in other words. We've all been to funerals and weddings, and we've never been to one at the same time, or, or you know, either one of them at the same time, uh, unless, you know, you had that invitation, you know, and it's, it's, a, it's a hard thing, you know, you might have to go visit somebody, and then you have to go to a wedding, you know. Uh, the point of the matter is, you don't really do that, you know. But what uh, is being described here by Isaiah is that there is this funeral shroud that God is going to lift and destroy. And this wedding feast is going to take place. Listen to what the Apostle Paul and, and the Apostle John say as they have both quoted from verse 8. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 54 through 57, Paul says, So when this corruptible is put on incorruption, the corruptible being the body of flesh, when the body of flesh puts on, and, and this mortal has put on immortality, we've gone from mortal to immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death is swallowed up in victory. Do you see verse 8? He will swallow up death forever in our text. 
death is swallowed up in victory. The sting, oh, I'm sorry, oh death, where is your sting? Oh Hades where, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. How can that be? Because Jesus took death for us. Jesus died for us. And those who believe in, in, in Messiah will realize that that shroud for us has already been removed. Though these bodies may die, we will not die. We will be alive. And we will be very much alive in the presence of Almighty God and in the presence of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We have that victory, not because we've done anything, not because we've accomplished anything, but Christ has accomplished it for us on the cross. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, John writes, For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to the living fountains of waters, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Folks, I don't know about you, but I can't wait for a day when I won't have to suffer you know, as, as we all do from time to time, the hurts and the pains and the afflictions of this life to the point where we are weeping for the, for, the, for the hurts and pains of other people or even weeping for ourselves. One day we will be in the presence of God and every tear will be wiped away. What's amazing about that picture, I don't think we oftentimes see it this way, but we will have tears when we get there, but when we get there, we won't have them anymore. It reminds me of what, what's going to happen when, the, when, when, when all those who, who see Him whom they pierced, as we'll see in just a moment, it tells us that they'll be weeping. But as they turn to their Messiah, every tear will be wiped away. It's not that they just disappear. He comes to wipe them away. And I believe that He will wipe away every tear of every person who believes and trusts in the Lord. That's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of love that the Lord has for His people. That's how big our God is, that He can wipe away your tears and my tears. And we'll know that it was Him, that He'll do it for each and every one of us. It's an amazing thought. In Revelation 21, verse 4, again John says, And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, no sorrow, no crying. There shall be no more pain. For the former things have passed away. Now, also the covering and the veil in, 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 uh, in verses 7 and 8 suggests the blindness of Israel and the nations to the true God. You know, Paul spoke of Israel being blinded by a veil. In Isaiah's time, it was more apparent that the nations themselves were blinded. But for both, the Jews and the Gentiles, the remedy really is the same. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 18. It says, Therefore, since we have such hope, Paul says, we use great boldness of speech. Unlike Moses who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at, at the end of what was passing away. You know, when, 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 when Moses was in the presence of Almighty God in the, on, on Sinai, uh, you know, just the very fact that he was there in his presence, uh, I mean, the glory, of the Shekinah or the Kavod glory of God was upon <laughs> Moses. And when he came down, everybody saw him and then they saw the glory of God on, on Moses. But see, because it was Moses and he was a human being, you know, that glory started wearing away and he would put a veil 
veil over his head because that, that way he would make them think that, <laughs> you know, he was still full of glory, but he wasn't, you know. Well, that's what it means here. But, but their minds were blinded. Notice verse 14. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. As long as they do not recognize Jesus as Messiah, they're going to have this veil over their eyes even when they read the Old Testament. The saddest thing is that they will not read Isaiah 53. They used to read Isaiah 53. They don't read it anymore. Why? Because Isaiah 53 points to Jesus Christ. They need to read it. Verse 15, But even to this day when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. doesn't matter what they read. The veil lies there. What's the veil? The shroud of death. Nevertheless, and here, here's, here's the key, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Why is it that when you came to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, all of a sudden you began to understand things? You didn't know everything, you didn't understand everything, but you understood more than you did. Why? Because the veil was lifted. You were no longer under the curse of death. Now you were made alive through Jesus Christ. In verse 17, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, freedom. But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. See, now our faces are unveiled. Why? Because the glory is there for us, not because of us. Not like Moses who was alone on the mountain with God, but that glory faded away. You know why it doesn't fade away? Because Jesus is with us and His Spirit is with us. And it says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Folks, we have to be different because we belong to Jesus Christ. And it is no longer the glory of the world that should shine from us. It should be the glory of Jesus Christ that comes from within and out of us. There's coming a day when we will no longer be troubled by sin. That is great reason to praise the Lord now. For there's a day coming that we will not be troubled any longer. Look at verse 9. And it will be said in that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for Him. And He will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. These are very careful words to look at. We have waited for Him. We will be glad and rejoice in His salvation. This is our God. We've waited for Him. When the Lord Jesus Christ returns in power and great glory, the veil will be removed from Israel's eyes and they will see their Messiah and their God. Zechariah 12 now, verse 10. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. How am I doing on time, by the way? I haven't seen anything. Oh, okay. All right. And then they will look on me whom they pierce. This is, this is the Messiah speaking. 
I will pour in the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierce. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a, first, for a firstborn. Now we will sing this song because we sing it now. But the testimony of God's people is one of waiting patiently for God's good timing and for God's faithfulness. Israel's rejoicing and ours too will be in His salvation. Folks, understand, it will be in His salvation. If it were our salvation, one of our own making, that would be nothing to be glad or to rejoice in. Because by the way, folks, we can't save ourselves. No matter how hard we try, we cannot save ourselves. Psalm 51, verse 12. Listen to what David says in his psalm of repentance. He says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. He doesn't say restore my salvation. He says restore the the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. The wanderings of Israel will come to an end when they see their Messiah, their Savior, and their King. And lastly, we see that the Lord will resolve all things. And again, here we go. We go through this whole... uh, Little apocalypse in even chapter uh, 25, verses 10 to 12. Now look at that. For on this mountain the hand of the Lord will rest, and Moab shall be trampled down under him, as straw is trampled down for the refuse heap, which is actually a pile of manure. And he will spread out his hands in their midst as a swimmer reaches out to swim. Have you ever thought about that picture? Trying to swim through manure? That's exactly what he's saying. I'm sorry if you haven't eaten yet. You know, I'm not trying to gross you out. This is what God's saying here. And he will bring down their pride together with the trickery of their hands. Folks, you want to be proud? This is what you've got to look forward to. The fortress of the high fort of your walls he will bring down, lay low and bring to the ground, down to the dust. There is some sense that Moab is chosen here to be an example of how the Lord is going to humble all of Israel's enemies because, as we saw in chapters 15 and 16, Moab represented a proud people of false religious profession. The Moabites were compared to straw that was trampled so deep in manure that the people would have to swim through the manure to get out. There is nothing to be proud about in this picture that Isaiah paints. There's no question that Jesus will rule the nations with all authority and with righteousness. God will bring to nothing every proud, every rebellious heart that opposes His rule. Just, just think how patient God is with us today. Because we, we, we ignore the Lord sometimes. We rebel against Him openly. Sometimes we just, we just say, well, Lord, I just don't believe that kind of stuff. You know, I'm going to do my own thing. I mean, I, I'll keep coming to church, but I'm going to do my own thing. Folks, be careful. Because God will will bring to nothing every proud, rebellious heart opposed to His rule. In Psalm 2, verses 7-12, through it says, I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. This is to the Lord Jesus Christ. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. This is during the millennial period, the thousand-year period, reign of Christ. Verse 10, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. 
kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. You see, let's not tempt God. Let's not test him. Let's trust him. Let's believe him. Let's rejoice in the fact that he's a faithful God. Realize that when Jesus came, it it tells us in John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The first time that he came, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That's the first coming. But every time we look at the second coming of Jesus Christ, what is He coming to do? He is coming to judge. How much time has He given for us to turn our lives to Him? To bask in His mercy, to bask in His grace and His love, His his truth. Our God is worthy to be praised, but He's worthy to be praised today and right now. Israel is missing it. Eventually they'll see. But but today for us, what are we waiting for? We need to praise God now. In praising Him, we need to follow Him. Let me close with a couple of things. William Law, 17th century, 17th, 18th century, Christian writer. He said, Receive every day as a resurrection from death, as a new enjoyment of life. Let your joyful heart praise and magnify so good and glorious a Creator. Wonderful statement. Receive every day as a resurrection from death, as a new enjoyment of life. Let me close with with this prayer, of uh, Jewish traditional prayer of the 3rd through the 5th century. Because it says something that fits what we've just read in, in Isaiah 25. If my lips could sing as many songs as there are waves in the sea. If my tongue could sing as many hymns as there are ocean billows. If my mouth filled the whole firmament with praise. If my face shone like the sun and moon together. If my hands were to hover in the sky like powerful eagles and my feet ran across mountains as swiftly as the deer, all that would not be enough to pay you fitting tribute, O Lord, my God. That's how this, song, this uh, verse or this chapter began. O Lord, you are my God. no matter how much we praise Him, it's never enough. So let's keep praising Him.